Hello, and thanks for listening to this sermon from Ethos Chicago. We're a church that worships and serves together in Chicago, Illinois, and you can find us online at ethoschicago.com. Good morning, Ethos, and welcome to worship on this Sunday as we conclude our series on justice. Let's begin with a call to worship from Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Now let's pray together. God, thank you so much. Um, for your love for us, your steadfast love and your great faithfulness, your mercies that are new every morning. Thank you so much for Jesus who gives us life and freedom and um, makes us blameless before you. I pray that we would remember those things, be reminded of those things today and be encouraged. Um, Yeah, thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. This is, this is my Father's work. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven Let's take a minute now to confess our sins before God, first together in a prayer of corporate confession and then individually. God of love, it is your will that we should love you with heart, soul, mind, strength, and our neighbor as ourselves, but we are not sufficient for these things. We confess that our affections continually turn away from you, from purity to lust, from freedom to slavery, from compassion to indifference, from fullness to emptiness. Have mercy on us. Order our lives by your holy word and make your commandments the joy of our hearts. Conform us to the image of your loving Son, Jesus, that we may shine before the world to your glory. Amen. And now let's confess each ourselves. And now let's hear the words of assurance from Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When my heart is weary, when my soul is weak, when it seems I can't traverse the trail before me I survey the glory of your agony And I find the will to fight for what's before me Cause you ran the race enduring for I fix my eyes on you, the founder and the finisher of our faith. I fix my eyes on you, the solace in your suffering is my As I fight to follow, you're my righteous guide, and you train me to delight in all that's holy. Heal my broken body, kill my crooked stride, throw off every weight and sin that clings so closely. I will run the race enduring for your glory. I fix my eyes on you, the fountain. 
Today's passage comes from Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, Ethos. Good to be with you again. Thanks for joining us in this time of worship. Today, I want to just jump straight to it, and I'm going to begin on a more serious note, as I did in the very beginning of our series, I want to again read from a, a section of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham Jail. It's a section you may have heard before, but it's a section I think that's incredibly relevant to what we're going to talk about today. And Dr. King says this, he says, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, and there's only, I'm only going to read one of the confessions, so don't worry if you don't hear a second. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice who constantly says, I agree with 
you and the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. And then he goes on to talk about this idea of the myth of time. He says, it's a strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively. I am coming to feel that people of ill will have used time much more effectively than people of goodwill. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. We must come to see that human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and persistent works, work of men willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social indignation. Or stagnation, sorry. You know, today we're going to look at how we should respond in light of the fact that racism is abhorrent to God, as we've been looking at the last two weeks, in light of the fact that it's against his will and his character. And I wanted to start with this quote from Dr. King as a reminder that not all racism is overt. Not all racism is in your face, so to speak. In fact, most racism, racism that really hurts, as Dr. King says, takes a different form. It takes the form of indifference to the suffering of others. It takes the form of passivity with respect to systems that allow some to flourish while condemning others to struggle. It takes the form of demanding of others what we would not tolerate of our, for ourselves. So I wanted to start with this quote as, as a challenge, really, particularly in light of all that's going on now. A challenge, particularly even to myself, that we take what we're talking about today incredibly serious because it's incredibly important. So with that in mind, let's pray and then we'll jump in. Father, thanks for this opportunity once again to look at this important topic, incredibly relevant in our world today. And Lord, I pray that you would give us receptive hearts uh, to hear what you would have for us, uh, each and every one of us, how you would have us to respond individually and corporately as a church, as, as your body here in the place where you planted us in Lincoln Park in Chicago. And so Lord, be our true teacher today. I pray that your spirit would take your word and make it come alive to our hearts. And so, Lord, bless us in this way, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, we're ending our series where we have been looking at what the Bible has to say about justice and the God of justice. And today, we want to continue that by looking at this topic, this theme of justice and race. In the last two weeks, if you've been with us, you know that we've looked at four ways in which, at which, the, in which the Bible calls racism a sin. And today I want to briefly then go to the next step and say, look at how it is then we should respond, how the Bible tells us that uh, we should respond to the fact that racism is abhorrent to God. Now, of course, there's all sorts of 
practical and social and political ways that we should and can respond. And many of these are really good and really appropriate. For instance, we should be more proactively um, educating ourselves about the historical struggles and plight of the African-American uh, in this country. Uh, we should become aware of and actively concerned about the current issues plaguing the black community. And we should become aware of ways in which our words and actions hurt others and help promote and perpetuate a system of injustice. And of course, we should encourage our governmental, civic, and corporate leaders to enact legislation or initiate change that will help put an end to systemic racism. And I could go on, but I just want to highlight that there are so many things that we can do and should do practically, socially, politically. And many of these things, as I hope we will see in just a few minutes, are rooted in a biblical and gospel-centered understanding of race and justice. But my emphasis today and what I really want to focus in is what does the Bible say? Yes, all these things are good. These practical and social and political things are good. But what does the Bible tell us about how we should respond to racism? What should we do, in other words? And it's probably going to surprise absolutely no one that I'm going to suggest that there are three, three things that we should do. And so let's jump in and look at those. And the first is this. First, we should think. Think. Here's what I mean. Remember, two weeks ago, we looked at Galatians chapter 2, and we said the first reason racism is a sin is because it's not in line with God's plan of salvation. It's not in line with the gospel. It's completely at odds with the idea that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf alone. In other words... Our salvation has nothing to do with us, nothing to do with our race, our ethnicity, our pedigree, our moral record. Remember, as we saw two weeks ago, Paul rebukes Peter for making race and ethnicity a determining factor in choosing whether or not to have fellowship with new Gentile converts in Antioch. And what does he accuse Peter of? He accuses Peter of not acting or walking in line with the gospel. And in essence, or in many ways, that was Paul's invitation. That was Paul's challenge to Peter to think, to think about the implications of the gospel for the way we live. You know, in that, in saying don't, we're not act, or Peter was not acting in line with the gospel, Paul uses an interesting word. It's orthopedeo. It's a compound word. Ortho meaning straight, like we go to the orthodontist to straighten our teeth. Or, and then pedeo has to do, of course, with, with walking. So like in the old days, if you got pulled over by a police officer for suspicion of driving under the influence, the officer would tell you to orthopedale. Not really, but that's what he would basically say is walk a straight line. And what Paul is saying is this, that the gospel throws out these lines. It carries with it all sorts of real and practical implications for our lives. And we need to take the time to think, to think about what those lines are telling us. See, the reality is the gospel bears on every dimension of our lives, including how we think about people who are different than us, of different races, of different ethnicities. And so just like Paul was doing with Peter, we need to see this as an invitation or a challenge, if you will, to think about how the gospel would have us respond or act toward someone who maybe looks different than you and I or, or dresses different or who has different cultural practices than us. 
And then more corporately, we should take the time to think about our own systems of living and working and being and how they're set up and how our civic and corporate structures are operating and what it means for others, what it means to live in a system, for instance, that often benefits one race over another. I mean, these are not easy things to do, particularly when it comes to thinking through these corporate aspects. But that's the challenge. That's the invitation. That's what it means to live in line with the gospel. We start by thinking, thinking through its implications. So that's the first thing. Real short there, but that's the first thing the Bible tells us to do is think. But second, and I'm going to spend more time here. Second, it tells us to work to broaden our view of salvation. And here's what I mean by this. I really think in many ways this has been <laughs> the whole point of this series. You know, many of us, and I've said this in this series, have too narrow a view of what our salvation is all about. And that really became highlighted for me even this week as I was listening to two podcasts, both which the speaker, the person being interviewed, said pretty much the same thing, but in very different ways. The first podcast was an NPR interview of Dr. Robert Jones, who's the CEO and founder of the Public Religion Research Institute. And he wrote a book recently called White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. And I quoted uh, in my email about 10 days ago, I quoted uh, a section of uh, op-ed that Dr. Jones had written for NBC News, talking about some of the statistics also of his research over a couple of decades and what his research revealed about racism and white evangelicals. And it's really astounding. I mean, he says this, white, angel white evangelicals are nearly twice as likely as religiously unaffiliated, and unaffiliated whites to say that killing black men by police are isolated events rather than a pattern of how police treat African Americans. He said there's 30 percentage points more likely, white evangelicals are 30 percentage points more likely to say monuments to Confederate soldiers are symbols of Southern pride rather than symbols of racism. And he says white evangelicals are 20 percent, 20 percentage points more likely to disagree with the idea of systemic racism. And here's the thing that's even more shocking. He says those numbers increase when you talk about people who attend church regularly. And in the podcast, he was asked, why do white evangelical Christians have a hard, harder time recognizing or acknowledging systemic racism? And he said this, and I thought it was very interesting. He said, for decades, we've emphasized the importance of having a personal relationship with Christ. And I know for me and people of my generation, that was huge. You'd hear phrases like, Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. It was all about having this personal relationship with Jesus, which isn't a bad thing, but that was really the heart of it. And he said, here's the problem that highlights and promotes individualism. It makes Christianity preoccupied with self. It discourages us from looking or thinking that Christianity has a broader corporate aspect. So we emphasize personal worship or personal morality or personal accountability. And as long as we are personally doing well, that's all that matters. And then the second podcast was a podcast called Unlocking Us, um, featuring Brene Brown. And she was interviewing Austin Channing Brown, a renowned speaker and uh, author. And they were talking uh, about this whole idea, of course, of what's going on in our country today and racism. 
And Austin Channing Brown mentioned that she grew up in, of course, the, well, not of course, but the African-American church. But she said, surprisingly, she received almost entire education in white evangelical schools. And so she said, I'm familiar with both worlds. And she said, I've come to see, much like others, like Jane Baldwin, among others, who have said, made this observation. She said, I've come to see that there is a black Jesus and a white Jesus. And here's how she described the two. She said, black Jesus never asked the question, does the gospel really have anything to do with race and justice? She said, black Jesus doesn't hesitate to say black lives matter. Black Jesus stands for the oppressed, cares about those who are most marginalized, and does not just care, but sits with, fights for, and is angered by their mistreatment. While white Jesus is interested in self and money and capitalism and self. How much can I get? How much power can I hoard? It's all about self. And it's all about the preservation of self, of ego, but mostly power. A deep, deep desire to yield power over others. White Jesus is power over, not power with, power from, or power shared. And she goes on to say that the real problem then when it's all about self is that niceness becomes a standard by which we judge ourselves. And as long as we view ourselves, and speaking here of white evangelicals, white Christians, as long as we view ourselves as nice, we don't see ourselves as part of the problem. We, we don't even think there may be even a problem. You know, I treat people fairly. I have black friends. Ask any of my friends and they'll tell you I'm not racist. And because we are satisfied with our niceness, we don't stop to think about how we enjoy the benefits of the system that's set up for our success and for others' failure. So all that is set up because here's where Scripture and here's where the Bible challenges us. And here's why I say we have to work, and I do mean work, at broadening our perspective regarding what our salvation is all about. We've seen that throughout this series. Let me just mention two aspects that really point us in this direction. One is the very definition of justice itself. As we said, justice about giving people their due. And that includes, of course, stopping wrongdoers and punishing wrongdoers who are harming others. But I hope we have seen that biblically speaking, it's a lot more than that. In fact, Biblically speaking, justice much more often is speaking about giving the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, their due, caring for them, protecting them, standing with them and for them, doing everything in our power to lift them up. And this flows, I hope we've seen, from the heart of God. This is in large part what the Bible means when it speaks of our Lord being the God of justice. Remember, we started by looking at Psalm 146, and here's what it says. Let me just read it for you again. It's just such a beautiful picture of who our God is. It says, Blessed are those whose help is the, is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause, and there's that word mishpat. It means justice. He gives justice to the oppressed. And then the rest of it's just an explanation of what that means. It says, and he gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the way of the wicked. See, this is what our God is like. The psalmist says that he literally brings his 
creation power to bear in support and care for the poor and the marginalized and oppressed. The very definition of justice points us to broaden our salvation. But second, we see this in what we talked about last week, where we said salvation is much more than forgiveness. Salvation is much more than a little pick-me-up in our life. No, in light of the resurrection, salvation means bringing apart of the future into the presence. It's seeing the reality of the new creation, our ultimate destiny, brought more and more into our world today. I love that quote from Dr. Keller. It says, what is the gospel? Bringing God's future into our present. And that means, like Dr. King, we need to have a dream. We need to have this eternal vision. We need to be looking at that, that day when there's going to be no discrimination, no favoritism, no racism, when people from every tribe and tongue and nation will come together and be united as one before the Lord in all of our differences, which, by the way, we're still going to carry with us. And instead of being our differences, instead of being a source of fear and pride, they're going to be forever reasons for awe and wonder and joy and the appreciation of beauty. We won't be colorblind, but we will be color enhanced. You see, this is the incredibly largeness of our salvation, and we are called by the reality of the resurrection to bring that future into our present. We need to broaden, to work at, and it is work, to work at broadening our view of what our salvation is all about. And then third, and maybe most obviously, we need to repent. We need to think, we need to broaden, and then lastly, we need to repent. And what does it mean? What does it mean to repent of racism? Well, in one sense, the answer is simple. Repentance means change. It means to turn around and head in the opposite direction. But let me be more specific, and let me just mention four aspects of what this repentance should look like. And the first is this, that we need to remember that repentance is primarily to God. All sin is ultimately against Him and against His will and against His good creation. And so as we've looked at the last two weeks, those are great things to think about when we think about repenting before God. We need to repent to God for the ways in which we have violated the image of God, neighbor love, the new creation, the gospel of grace. We need to repent of ways that we have deliberately and knowingly violated God's will in those areas. And then we need to get and remember, secondly, that real repentance is about getting to the root of sin. We need to repent of the real problem. Again, back to Peter and Paul, as we saw in Galatians chapter 2. And again, what was Paul's analysis with respect to the real sin? Notice, again, he didn't say to Peter, repent of your racism, you bigot. Rather, he said, repent of the sin of forgetting your gracious welcome by God through the costly sacrifice of Christ. Paul didn't just focus on the behavioral sin as much as the root of the self-righteousness beneath it, the root of the othering that was going on, the root of using others' differences as a way to make ourselves feel better or feel superior to them, to, in other words, try to enhance our status before others and before God, which is a rejection of the gospel. That's the root problem. And again, I'll just mention this kind of as a side because I think it's important. When we approach people that way, this approach is far more persuasive and effective than simply ranting at someone about being racist. When we try to motivate people by encouraging them to see their riches in Christ, you're pointing them to their value and dignity 
in your appeal and you're not just putting them down, but you're actually lifting them up as you're giving them a very pointed critique. So we repent first of the Lord, repent of the real sin, but keep in mind that we're called to repent not just of things that are we see that are deliberate. Uh, Psalm 19 says this, it asks the question, who can discern their own errors? And so the psalmist says, forgive my hidden faults. And that should remind us that we should ask God to open our eyes to things that we don't see and be willing to repent of the ways that we are doing, for instance, ra racial othering uh, that we're barely conscious of. You know, it's just curious or, I don't know, interested or uh, humored by, you know, Daniel Hill uh, is a pastor of River City Church in Chicago, and he uses Twitter a lot. And he tweeted about two weeks ago about white privilege and mask wearing, and I thought it kind of related here. He says, many of us who are white struggle to describe traits of white culture. Our current climate helps reveal one, though. The general refusal to wear masks points to one of the most dominant traits, hyper-individualism. It's so foreign for us to know how to think collectively, communally. And I think he's right. And it's just something, even wearing masks we, or refusing to wear masks can be just kind of this thing we don't even think about, and yet it's part of the problem, even of racism. So finally, the fourth thing is that we need to repent and ask forgiveness of those we've offended and acknowledge, in a sense, the corporate nature of racism. You know, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, says this, that the love of one's country begins to go bad when we airbrush our past. I believe that repentance necessitates that we come to grips with the ways that our society has treated various people groups, particularly the African-American community. You know, Miroslav Wolf, a professor at Yale that I've quoted from many times in this, series in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, observes that there are at least four ways that we can exclude a group of people from society. And he says the first is elimination, which is to literally kill them off or to drive them completely out. Think of the Holocaust, for instance. And the second is domination, to, to segregate them and then to terrorize them in, in order to keep them within certain bounds. And the third is assimilation, to refuse to accept any individuals who do not abandon their distinctiveness and culture and adopt the dominant culture's forms or norms. And the fourth is abandonment, to refuse to care for the needs or defend the rights of a particular group. And historically, the U.S. has inflicted at a minimum the last three kinds of exclusion of Af African Americans, and arguably it still does. And I think you can make a good argument that to trace out and admit this history is part, it's supposed to be part of our repentance as well. So we are to think, we are to broaden, and we are to repent. But let me end this series and this message with one final quote uh, from Dr. King's letter from Birmingham Jail. And it's kind of a prophetic call to us as we think about justice and race, but as we think about justice as a whole. And so let me end with this. There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Wherever the early Christians entered, whenever, wherever, 
the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to, to convict them of being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number, but big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. Things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structures of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanctions of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning in the 20th century, or for that matter, the 21st. May we be like the early church, a people willing to be thermostats rather than thermometers, people willing, so God intoxicated that we are willing to do whatever it takes to see that all people enjoy what God intended for them to enjoy and to be blessed by. Let's pray. Father, thanks for just your heart. I just thank you that you are a God of justice who cares for the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. And Lord, I pray more and more you would give us your heart individually, but more importantly, collectively, that we as a body would reflect your heart to a world that needs to see it. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to take our offering. You can do that online at ethoschicago.com, and then let's sing our doxology together. Praise God from
Two quick uh, announcements uh, before the benediction. The first is this. We're going to do another communion service uh, next Sunday, uh, August 16th. We're going to do it in the same location, Us Park, on the west side of the park at the same time, 1030. And I encourage you, if you can, if you feel comfortable, come and join us for that time. Again, it's going to be a short service of communion and then 
You can stick around and have time to socialize. But again, we request that everyone wear masks and that you come and social distance. Uh, and last time, everybody was great, and I trust that we'll be that way again. And then second, as always, if you have a need, please let us know. And we want to be there for you. So bless us by letting us know so that we can come alongside of you. So with that, let us now receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he turn his countenance towards you and give you peace. And now as God's people, go in peace and spread God's peace. And all God's people said, Amen.